You're listening to TIP. Google is probably one of the last companies we have to worry about being disrupted by AI. They have substantial investment in AI. They have their own AI. I think Google and Microsoft are among the cheaper stocks in tech. Apple and Amazon and Tesla being the more expensive and I would avoid. If you can get Microsoft 10% lower, I'd buy it. If you can get Google at today's price, I would buy it. On today's episode, I'm joined by Logan Kane. Logan is an author and entrepreneur and currently a writer for Seeking Alpha. During this episode, Logan shares some tactics with us on how to execute strategies to be a better bull with ETFs IJR and IJH, as well as how to be a better bear with the right money market funds. We also revisit his analysis on Google and talk about how big of a threat new AI platforms like ChatGBTR for Google's status as the top search engine platform. And then we get into why bank stocks are Logan's top stock picks for 2023, which bank stocks in particular he thinks offer the best opportunities, along with we dive into some quantitative strategies such as return stacking. And Logan explains what this is, how this strategy works, and then he discusses some ETFs that implement this strategy. I really enjoyed this conversation with Logan. I always learn a new tactic or strategy after talking with him and reading his articles. So I highly recommend checking him out on Seeking Alpha if you haven't already yet. So with that all said, I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko. And on today's episode, I bring back Logan Kane. Welcome back, Logan. Yeah, thanks for having me back on, Rebecca. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming back on. I'm really happy we got to do this again. I got so many great messages about your last episode. And so there's a number of things I want to cover with you today. And I think a good place to start is on one of the recent articles you wrote on how to be a better bull. You talk about buying IJR and IJH, which tracks the S&P 600 small cap index and the latter is the S&P 400 mid cap index instead of just buying ETFs that track the S&P 500 and the Russell 2000 index. And so I think I want to cover this topic because I think it covers a few great things first on how to just potentially improve your returns above the market. And then the second is just really understanding the underlying index that the ETF tracks, because that can vastly lead to differences in performances just based on that index. And so please walk us through your analysis on these two. Sure. I think the first thing that we can start with is the difference between strategy and tactics for investors. So 99% of what you're going to see right now at this time of year on the market is going to be strategy. Where's the S&P headed? What earnings, inflation, like where are we headed? But this is tactics. So the difference between strategy and tactics was first really dug into by Sun Tzu, Chinese military thinker, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. He came out and he said, okay, so there's tactics and there's strategy. So you got to have good strategy and you got to have good tactics. For example, like a strategy would be if uh, you could predict where the market is going, but a tactic would be like, what's the best fund to play it? 
what we did on our last podcast when I came on was we did a lot of tactics. And I think that's what people liked. We said, don't buy Apple. You can buy Berkshire Hathaway because 40% of Berkshire Hathaway is Apple and Berkshire is much cheaper. You buy the Google Class A stock rather than a Class C It's 1% cheaper. So you pick that up for free. On the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, you say you buy that instead of regular Bitcoin and you got the 50% discount. Um, there's a big activist campaign that we're going to talk about later. But I guess I'll refocus the question on the tactics with the S&P and why uh, small and mid caps are better. This is fairly uncontroversial. It's long running academic research that typically small and mid cap stocks outperform large cap stocks. And there's a few reasons why this is. Larger stocks are more popular. You know, they get more attention from investors. Smaller stocks have more room to grow. And historically, but not always, there's often a valuation difference where you can get small cap stocks for cheaper. This is very true right now. And it's only been this big of a valuation gap in the 2000 tech bubble, late 90s, early 2000s. So you have the S&P that's quite expensive and you have these small and mid cap stocks, which are pretty cheap. So tactically, you move away from a lot of these mega cap stocks that might be trading 40, 50, 60 times earnings, and you go into small caps that are trading 10, 12, 14 times earnings. It makes it a lot easier to make money. And the reason why IJH and IJR is important here, because the Russell 2000 is the most popular small cap index, but it's actually flawed. And this is just a classic tactic right here. But there's a paper called Size Matters If You Control Your Junk. It was done by Cliff Asnos of AQR. It's, the title's meant to be ironic, obviously, but it doesn't matter if you invest in small cap stocks, if you invest in junk stocks. And a lot of small cap stocks are quite speculative. We've seen this with SPACs. You could take anything public, it loses money. The beauty of the S&P 600, which is ticker IJR, and the S&P 400, which is ticker IJH, is that you're required to make money to be in this index. And a lot of small cap stocks, 30, 40% of the broader universe of small cap stocks lose money. If we were going to invest in a brick and mortar business on Main Street, we would not want to invest in one that loses money. But in the stock market, there's this idea that people take an efficient investing too far. And so they say, yeah, let's uh, just build an ETF with all the companies that lose the most money and we'll invest in it. No, you invest in that, you're going to get crushed. The beauty of IJR and IJH is these profitable companies. And historically, if you go back to the late 90s, it, it outperforms by about 2% per year versus the broader index with the money losing companies. This is related to the academic trend of quality. So that size matters if you control your junk paper by Cliff Ausnes. He's the founder of AQR. It's one of the world's biggest hedge funds. That's the key insight is that you need to tilt towards quality in your portfolio at all levels, but especially in small cap stocks, because it's kind of hard for them to get financing, especially when the economy turns down if they're losing money. I really like that article. I think it pointed out so many great things, all of which you just mentioned. And I was quite surprised at the mid cap performance, which was very close to small cap over time. And so that's actually a segment of the market I've kind of ignored, to be honest, just because I've been factor investing. But there is a lot of, I guess, research on how the small cap premium could be dwindling. And I actually had a guest on who talked about they don't view small cap as a factor anymore or premium. They just view it as an extension to get more stocks, more exposure to stocks with these other qualities. It was an interesting view because at the end of the day, we just want to earn the most money by doing the least amount. And so small cap stocks, there's so many more of them. And so it just gives you a wider variety for diversification. 
I think if I might here, I would probably push back on the idea that the small cap premium is dwindling. I think you can attribute all of that to junk stocks in the small cap universe. For the Russell 2000 versus that's the index with the junk, it's got about 80, 90% market share with small cap uh, index funds. S&D 600 has much less market share. So a lot of the money that's going into small caps is simply being lit on fire. You invest it in these companies and they're trying to do space tourism or they're trying to do just like wacky, zany stuff. And they get this money because, you know, your 401k provider says, hey, this is the Russell 2000. Just, uh, but it, uh, there's no quality control. And that's kind of the genius of these indexes. That is going to be a debate. And that's an argument for mid caps, I think, because they are so ignored. But I like IJR and I like IJH. And we could probably run it in a horse race against uh, AVUV. And I think you mentioned some other funds. So, I guess that message is small cap. You believe the premium still exists when quality is controlled for. And so IJR is one that does very well at that and avoid the Russell 2000 indexes or ETFs to track that. But then, yeah, last time we also touched on small cap value because that gets into different territory. There's a bunch of ETFs that give you exposure to small cap value. And out of the small cap value ETFs, which would you say is your preferred way to invest in that segment? We kind of went back and forth before the show on like some of these ETFs and Rebecca mentioned AVUV for the listeners. It's a really good ETF. I looked at it and I think there's a good chance that if I were to choose IJR and if she were to choose that and we were to say, hey, let's place a bet and see which one does better in five years. I think it could win. I think AVUV could win. The expense ratio is a little higher. She's spotting me about 20 basis points per year on this. Um, if you were to choose that and I were to choose IJR. Um, but I think AVUV could have the advantage. You got to watch sector exposures and some of these ETFs because it can, if you had a lot of energy exposure last year, it could make you look really good. And if you didn't, it could make you look really bad. Historically, it's not that insane with like energy being up 60% and the market being down 20. That's pretty extreme for a sector outperform. I mean, 80, 80 percentage points about performance in a year is pretty extreme. But I think small value is among the most well-known like areas of the market that you want to be. And most people really don't. It seems like everybody's doing factors, but most people really don't. I mean, a lot of people are just putting money in Tesla and like just they're just chasing the hottest stocks. There are a few areas of the market where factors might be a little overplayed. The easiest is probably momentum. Momentum funds are pretty notorious for not being able to live up to their because anytime you're betting on the behavior of others, it becomes reflexive. I prefer the kind of anomalies that correlate to better businesses rather than kind of anomalies that correlate to other investors being irrational, unless there's like hard constraints that are going to cause them to do that for a long time in the future, which we can get into later. That is such a good point because the momentum premium actually has the highest odds of outperformance in every year. But I would argue it's the hardest to actually achieve because it's such a high turnover strategy. And I think it's often implemented perhaps ineffectively. And it's just, it's hard to capture. It's very hard to capture with the ETF, especially if it's a multi-billion dollar ETF. As a tactic, if we're like, if we own some stocks and they're going up a lot and we want to ride the momentum, it's great. But it's very hard to build a fund around it because, you know, your fund is so big. You become, if you're not the predator, you become the prey with some of this momentum stuff. It's zero sum. Like if we invest in these businesses, right, our return is the return of the business. 
So if you invest in a better business, you get a higher return. I personally think that's easier than just playing poker against people in like SPACs or something. Like I said, unless you have like institutional advantages or you have a better capital stack, it's very hard just like uh, beat people on this because, you know, you're going against computer programs, you're going against all kinds of stuff. It's hard to beat, in my opinion. So I also want to talk to you about a few specific stocks. Now we're going to get into it because our listeners really loved your deep dive on Google and Apple, where last time you mentioned how you don't like Apple, but you do like Google and you think that it would give investors sufficient returns under $80 per share. I think also under $90 per share, you said wasn't too bad as well. I wanted to follow up on this because of new AI that has been getting a lot of attention lately, like chat GPT, which has just been, I don't know, it's, we were talking about this before the interview. There's just so many applications and maybe some concern that AI could dominate the search engine space now. And so I wanted to get your views on this and this new disruptive technology, how you think that could, is it a big competitor to Google and should they be worried? I did an article on this and I did some research on chat GPT and, and Google. And I was like, huh, you know, I was like, the media got very ahead of itself on the metaverse. And I'm like, is this for real or not? But then I actually tried this thing out and it's really good. If you haven't tried this thing out, like, go try it. And I mean, this thing is doing people's, it's doing kids like homework. It's like, uh, they're getting A's on the homework. Like you can have it write cover letters for like, if you're applying for jobs, I was having it write poetry. That's nuts. This startup has been, so they come out with this bombshell AI chatbot, and people are saying, can this take on Google? The answer is maybe it depends on the type of chat. I reached out to my friend in Dubai who runs a tech startup and she was like, this is legit. Like, this is for real. I was expecting her to just be like, oh, don't worry about it. But since since we're talking about Google here and AI disruption, I think Google is probably one of the last companies we have to worry about being disrupted by AI. They have substantial investment in AI. They have their own AI. It costs more money to run. Some of my readers have, uh, have commented that ChatGPT is... Sorry, I can't pronounce it. It's GPT, but I'm just going to say GPT because it's easier for me. It's costing them a lot of money to run this. and They're not making any revenue off of it, which is likely why Google hasn't made the upgrade yet. They're bringing in Microsoft. They're likely to Microsoft is, I don't know if it's announced yet or if they're negotiating it, but Microsoft's going to pump in like $10 billion and then they are going to try to take on Google. And again, I think this is a case where you could probably buy both. I think Google and Microsoft are among the cheaper stocks in tech. Apple and Amazon and Tesla being the more expensive and I would avoid. If you can get Microsoft 10% lower, I'd buy it. If you can get Google at today's price, I would buy it. It's really interesting. I mean, the world is continuing to evolve with tech and AI just has tremendous potential. What's going to be disrupted, I think, is more likely to be a lot of brick and mortar businesses. Like if you're a pharmacist, I would be a little bit worried about what AI could do to your job. You know, if you're a writer on Seeking Alpha, maybe a little less. I asked it to recommend me some investment strategies and they were pretty plain vanilla. I don't think ChatGBT is ready to manage your money yet. That's so funny. Yeah, I got it to do quite a bit for me too. I got it to write me lease agreements. And that's one thing that I think is so crazy how accurate it was. And you still need to know what to put in, what inputs, but it's just going to get better over time. And so I've had a lot of fun using it as well. The more formulaic what you're doing is, the more trouble AI could cause you. It is interesting, like since the pandemic, 
you go to McDonald's or somewhere and where somebody might have checked you out, a cashier, you might go to a computer now. And AI really accelerates the ability of machines to replace man in a lot of cases. In the end, I don't think it's going to save the world or ruin it, but I think it's going to be a huge incremental improvement on technology. It can really increase productivity. Like if you're a software programmer and you have this write code or edit your code, and then you look it over, it's, it's pretty good. I mean, it's, it's pretty powerful. I haven't done that yet, but I've seen so many videos of people asking it to write them codes for trading for anything and it works. And so lots of applications. And I guess the other thing is I was just trying to think about how this could disrupt the advertising on Google, because when you type in chat GPT, it's like, what are the 10 best restaurants in Kelowna, BC? They would have to come up with some type of search algorithm based on Because Google, you pay a certain amount per click to have your business show up. And so it's just interesting to see how that could compete with the open AI. One of my readers also commented on this. I'm lucky to have some really smart readers. There's two kinds of searches. There's informational searches and then there's transactional searches. So informational searches, AI potentially has a pretty large advantage. But let's say somebody searches car wreck lawyer or Dallas, Texas. The AI is probably not going to have a lot to say, but if you search that on Google, then, you know, you get these lawyers and they'll pay big bucks to Google to be top on that because personal injury attorney leads are worth a ton of money. That's actually one of the highest value keywords on all of Google. I think this is potentially a threat to Google. It's also potentially an opportunity if Google stock is getting cheaper because of this. I remember people thought Amazon was going to take over healthcare or people think Apple might take over the car business. It's just not going to happen. Not that the car business is generally uh, automaker stocks aren't typically the best places to put your capital. But anytime people get caught up in some of these narratives and they overplay them, I think there is potential. And Google remains cheap here. I think the long-term compensation is pretty good. Meaning 15 plus percent annual returns is what I would expect over the next 10 years. Partly because of AI and partly in spite of it. I will have you back on again and we'll get updated views because I think the interesting thing about companies' competitive advantages, and I talked about this in my year-end episode, my learnings from guests is that they can change what was once considered a moat or a company's competitive advantage can change over time. And so, like you said, AI could benefit Google or it could really hurt it in the long term. And we don't know right now. And so it's just worth knowing about and I guess watching it as it evolves. And so I guess the other thing, though, I wanted to ask you before I get into your top picks for 2023 is how to be a better bear, because you talked about how to be a better bull. On the flip side, though, if investors are just bearish and they don't perhaps want to deploy capital into the market right now, what are their other options and how can they make money while still being a bear? We're going to do more tactics here. If you're bullish on the market, we gave you some choices. If you're bearish, we're about to give you some more choices. The best I have found for right now is Vanguard money market funds. You can theoretically get a little more from treasury bills under some of these auto roll programs, but for a lot of investors, it's not worth it because if your broker is charging you a bid-ask spread, you really have to run it in Excel and see if the bid-ask spread is exceeding the yield in the money market or exceeding the difference in the yield between the money market and the treasuries. Treasury directs an option that people have kind of said it's a pain. The Vanguard Federal Money Market Fund is paying about 4.2% right now, 4.3 to 4.4 by the time you hear this. 
I think that's your best bet. And the reason why this is a tactic is because if you just stick your money in a brokerage account, chances are you're getting zero. And a lot of people don't know this because over the last 14 years, interest rates have been zero for almost all of the time. So people got trained to not expect interest. And this is part of why I like the financial sector this year. Americans alone are leaving 40, 50 billion dollars a year on the table just from not caring about interest anymore. I think they'll eventually learn, but they're not learning yet. If you put money in Vanguard, they're pretty classy about it. They'll automatically put it in this money market fund. But if you put it in like E-Trade or Fidelity, they'll just put it in a sweep account and it doesn't pay as much in the, the broker profits. If you use one of these brokers, you can still put it in money market funds. You just have to know that you just have to know that this is a thing and that you have to manage your cash properly. The other thing with the money market funds is Vanguard has a municipal money market fund and then they have a federal. The advantage of the federal is that you don't pay state income tax. The advantage of the municipal is that you don't pay federal income tax. There's a set of calculations that you can do here, but the break even is around 20% right now with the tax rate. And this is pretty typical, actually. And this is interesting because we might talk about market pricing being fairly efficient, but everybody has a different tax rate. Some investors pay zero tax because they're institutions like pension funds. Some investors are in the top bracket and they might pay, like, um, for example, if you're a New York taxpayer, top bracket, you might pay 50% on interest, on just ordinary income and interest. These different people who are in the market have different preferences and different tax rates. That creates opportunities. If you know your own situation and you know how stuff is priced, you can compare stuff for tactics. 3.5% in the municipal money market fund versus 4.2 is an easy win for somebody in the top tax bracket. You'd have to get almost 6%. And this is a classic tactic that like advisors and like just savvy investors are able to use, but it's good to know if you're in the top tax bracket in the US and you're investing in a taxable account, the municipal money market fund is the best place for your cash, almost always. And if you're in a lower tax bracket, then the federal is probably going to beat it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, High interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. 
Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. And then I was looking into it. I couldn't find it on my brokerage account. But are there any, I guess, because typically sometimes you're held up for a certain amount of time when you invest in these type of securities, but that's not the case with this Vanguard fund, right? It should be one day. It's like a mutual fund. So you redeem and then you get your money in one day. People have like asked me about this. So like, what if the market crashes in one day and I want to buy? And you give up that one day of flexibility. But like if the market has the massive one day crash, you can just buy in the morning. I don't think it's worth paying 100 basis points a year for the ability to buy. I mean, you're effectively paying 100 basis points a year for the ability to buy at 2.30 in the afternoon rather than wait until the next morning. That makes sense. Now, I think onto the fun stuff. I want to get your top picks for 2023. I know you've written some articles on this. Please share what you think your top picks are for the year. The best place to be last year was energy. I mean, energy had a historic year. I think the best place to be this year is going to be financials. And it's for the same reason we were just talking about on the Be a Better Bear, is that people are not used to earning interest on their bank and brokerage accounts. But the Fed continues to hike rates. So the difference just goes straight into profit for the banks. Now, we're recording this uh, January 13th. So the big banks reported earnings today. And they're all pretty good, but some banks more than others have started to put money in loss reserves for potential recession, right? So on one hand, you have big net interest income coming in from the Fed. And then on the other hand, you have this fear of recession. But I think if you do a half decent job of picking the banks, I think you can get some good stuff here because the valuations are pretty low. The dividend yields are good. And by the way, on those loss reserves, if they don't end up incurring the losses in the end, they can add them back into their net income. It's just a reserve. It's an accounting thing. Like this happened during COVID. They thought they were going to take a ton of losses and then they didn't. So they got, they had big earnings in 2021 when the losses weren't as bad as expected. So, I mean, we were talking earlier, the pricing for banks within the sector is pretty efficient. I think the pricing for the sector as a whole is wrong. And the reason I think it's wrong gets back to this 14 years of almost zero interest rate environment. This compresses the margins for banks. It, QE is often thought of as helping the economy. But the problem with the QE and the zero interest rate policy is that anybody who earns interest is not going to earn very much interest. I think investors are not fully appreciating the earning power of these banks that have kind of slept over the past 14 years. You get back to a normal interest rate environment, the earnings just explode. It depends on the recession. Like it depends on, I'm not particularly bullish on the housing market. If you really want to take a flyer, Canadian banks are very cheap. They're very exposed to the Canadian housing market. 
Actually, I mean, I say that the lending standards are a lot more conservative in Canada, but they're still going to have a lot of exposure to the housing market in Canada. So they could take losses that will be more severe than American banks, which have fixed rate mortgages. If you think the compensation is enough, you can get five, six, seven percent yields in a lot of cases. Bank stocks in the U.S. I like Truist. I like Truist because it has a funny name and it's less popular than Bank of America and JP Morgan. But the business is pretty good. The business performs pretty similarly. Well, JP Morgan has a higher return on equity. I think this is in part due to its investment banking business. Uh, JP Morgan has a very good investment bank. Truist is more, it's more like you go down to the branch, you might get a loan for your business, you go deposit your money. But the demographics are very good for Truist being, they have a lot of branches in Texas, uh, a lot of branches in Florida, in the mid-Atlantic. It's a good place to be. So I like Truist. Uh, Citigroup is probably the cheapest bank you could buy in the U.S. It's trading about half of its book value. They're getting out of some unprofitable international businesses. And once that's done, I think Citi's okay here. Bank of America looks good. The only one I would really avoid of the big banks is Wells Fargo. Um, This week, they announced they're getting out of the mortgage business, except for minorities and existing customers. So I immediately read this as trying to reframe the narrative in their poor earnings this week um, without getting too much into the politics. Anytime companies emphasize things other than earnings around earnings, it tends to be that their earnings are not that good. If a company has really good earnings, they'll just emphasize their earnings during earnings weeks. (laughs) Which brings me to Apple. Tim Cook just had the board vote him a 40% pay cut. So if you're looking forward to what Apple earnings are going to be later this month, that might be a little bit of trouble for Apple if he's cutting his pay in half or almost in half. It's really interesting to see how cheap they are relative to almost every other sector. And so I do like those picks that you gave. I was looking into them a bit more last night. And it just does make me wonder, though, what is the threshold where... Yes, rising interest rates improves their net interest margin. And I was even reading an article last night that was talking about the deposit beta for Citigroup, for example. Every time interest rates rise by, it was like 50 basis points, that has the potential to increase their net interest income by, it was $2.5 billion, which is quite crazy if you think about it. Okay, so the expectation is that there's still going to be a couple more rate hikes. That's what's, I guess, expected by the market so far. And so it does seem quite promising, but then you have to weigh what you were talking about with the increased potential of bad things happening, people defaulting because of that. Is your view then still that the positive increase in net interest is going to outweigh the negative effects in the economy? I think some investors might be fighting the last war here. Bank stocks were destroyed in 2008. In the last recession before that, in the early 2000s, bank stocks, they did okay. I mean, they were down about half as much as the market. But the Fed also cut rates from 6% to zero during that time. Not zero, they cut them to about 1%. You had this huge like pressure on banks, and then they came back, and then 2008 dumped them. If interest rates stay high here, obviously you have this tailwind. Getting really good compensation, and a lot of times this is how I think of stocks in terms of compensation rather than in terms of like binary events. If you're paying 10, 9, 10 times earnings for these banks, then you're getting pretty good compensation. They can take some losses because you're getting a lot of points on the spread. We'll see. I mean, in the 2000, 2002 recession, I mean, unemployment went to 6%. If unemployment goes to 6% here, I mean, that's no problem. If unemployment goes to 10 or 12, then we're, we're not going to make money in banks. But I'm not sure what other stocks you will make money in if unemployment goes to 12% in the US. I mean, everything will go down. 
you might as well cover the most number of scenario of likely scenarios. I think you've got 90% of scenarios covered with banks here of either interest rates staying higher and the economy does well, the economy going into recession because interest rates stay up. Inflation isn't a huge deal for the banks, in my view, because the Fed's fighting it, but customers are still trained to get zero. So like inflation can actually benefit them here. I think the setup is good. I think people aren't appreciating them. And I think that's the essence of value investing right here. I agree. It does look very attractive right now. And I guess just on that point, because you just talked about how unemployment, if it reaches 10% or 8%, that could signal things. It's going to be issues for the bank. What else would maybe change your thesis? Would it be if the Fed perhaps pivots because something breaks in the economy before that? Because there's lots of talk that I've at least had with other guests, how it could happen just because something breaks in the economy and even in the global economy that forces them to pivot. So it might not even be within, I guess, the US that really causes that, such as they've reached their inflation target. So, I mean, a lot of people are clamoring for this Fed pivot. I mean, we're not talking a whole lot of macro here, but stocks are very expensive, yet people think the Fed's going to pivot. People view the Fed cutting interest rates as a solution. But I think to some extent, the Fed keeping interest rates too low is actually the problem. I think that can make growth lower. For example, let's say you're retired, right? And the Fed cuts rates to zero. Retired people look around and they say, hey, you can't get a return anywhere, so I'm going to cut back my spending. See, that's a problem. It increases certain areas of the economy and stimulates certain areas of the economy, but it holds back other areas. Like classically, like in Europe, they did this negative interest rate thing and then their banks couldn't make any money. So in the end, they found it hard to get banks to loan people money. Consumers who might have a million, two million euros in the bank are like, well, I guess I can only spend 20, 30,000 euros a year because I'm not getting any return on my investment. I'm not convinced that cutting interest rates to zero would actually help the economy. I mean, the mainstream theory would tell you that it would, but I'm, I'm not sure here, especially with inflation, because over the last 15 years, inflation has been very benign. And now it's, it's the opposite of that. We shift regimes here. Bank stocks are where you want to be. If we go back to the old regime and I don't know, we go back to a slow growth, high unemployment world with zero interest rates and you don't want to own banks, but you really don't want to own anything else either. You'd probably want to own government bonds in that case. That's a good point. And then maybe that goes back to your tactics of how to be a better bear. But then we wouldn't even want that because then interest rates would be zero. You would just take as much duration as you could. You go buy a bunch of 30-year treasuries. You go buy long-term corporate bonds. And then they, they're paying 5% now on the corporates and 4%, close to 4% on some of the treasuries. You got your duration locked in and then, and then you would earn the difference. Okay, so we just talked about your top picks for 2023. And now I want to talk about another strategy that you got me interested in, and that is called return stacking. And so last time we were talking about how you tend to like quantitative strategies, and now they're available to investors through a lot of low-cost ETFs. They're just really not that hard to implement these days, but a lot of us don't know about them. And so I found this strategy super, super interesting, and I was hoping that you could explain it for our listeners and how it works. Sure. The strategy is return stacking. It's been popularized by some people in Boston. There's Newfound Research in Boston. There's Resolve Asset Management in Toronto. They have some funds around this. It's not a new idea, but it's a very good spin on it. As early as the 1980s, PIMCO came out with their Stocks Plus was the name of the fund. And this is still a great fund. 
But the idea is that you can use futures to get exposure to stocks and well, you might only need 10% of your money down to do that. And then you get another 90 to play with. So you could put that in bonds, you could diversify, you could do some commodities. There's a lot of stuff you can do. Now, there's ways to do this wrong and there's ways to do this right. Like it wouldn't really be return stacking if you just, I mean, you could do this. You could just lever the S&P two to one and you'd make a ton of money if it went up. But I think the most classic approach with this is to take that money and to put it into bonds. Now, for a kind of a neat tactic here, what you could do is you could invest in one of these funds and then you could just put the money in municipal bonds to get tax-free interest. So you get exposure to stocks and then you get tax-free municipal bonds in one. You, you got to manage the risk here, but you should be able to handily beat the S&P by doing this because you have both stocks and bonds. They're stacked on top of each other. Now, I started to get into return stacking in 2021, kind of as a result of seeing how bad the expected returns for assets were. In the end, this didn't, uh, this wasn't the best time to be thinking about return stacking. The best play would have just been to sit in cash, but it was the right idea at the wrong time in my mind. So kind of walk us through why it broke down in 2021, because I think what's interesting about the strategy is that in normal times when stocks and bonds are not positively correlated, it can actually reduce volatility. Even though it's a leveraged strategy, you get higher returns for lower volatility, which almost seems like a free lunch. It seems too good to be true, which it can be in some cases. And so what happened in 2021? In late 2021, the strategy stopped working I don't want to say failed because a lot of these funds are back to the prices they were in 2020. Everything went down. It didn't matter whether you had stocks or bonds or international stocks or preferred stock or pretty much everything went down except for commodities, which went up. So if everything goes down, leverage is bad because there's no way to diversify if everything goes down. But in the last two bear markets in 2008, I guess we can call the COVID dip a bear market. In 2008 and then in 2000, this strategy was extremely helpful to the point where you could about break even if you did it right versus losing 50% or more. Historically, concentration of risk and equities is more dangerous than leverage on a broad set of asset classes. In this case, meaning stocks, bonds, and commodities. Stocks have gone down 50 plus percent a few times. And I think it's it's more likely to happen now because the Fed seems to be more involved. That also became the problem with the return stacking. I think we compared some of the policies to like the policies where they put out every fire and like in the Western US and Canada. And then you can't stop wildfires from happening this way forever. They just, they just uh, happen later and they become worse when they do happen. The Fed, they can't stop the business cycle. And I think they've begun to realize that they shouldn't just peg interest rates at zero. It creates chaos and do massive QE. Because, But I mean, where we are now, I mean, if you have bond yields at three and a half percent on the 10 year and it's more symmetrical, it could make money or you could lose money. And I think bonds in some ways may be priced better than equities and commodities can offset some risks from both. I might not be selling the strategy very well because of the brutal performance in 2022. But I mean, the research on this goes back a very long time. And in as much as 80% of the market environments, you're going to do better if you lever rather than you concentrate all your risk and equities over any given 10-year period. I mean, the drawdowns will be longer with equities. 
the worst drawdowns will generally be worse. It's just outperforming. Like the theory shows that your risk will increase by the square root of the amount of diversified investments you can make, but your return will go up linearly. And Cliff Asmus was a big proponent of this. He wrote a paper called Why Not 100% Equities? And what he recommended was anybody who's considering going 100% equities should also consider a leveraged 60-40 portfolio. And in that case, you go 90-60. And this has been shown to outperform 100% equities. So that's, I think, probably the best way you could think about this is not just let's like take a ton of risk to try to uh, hit long-term return targets, but rather just start with a more diversified portfolio and use leverage to get your desired volatility rather than go all out just to try to hit a return target. And by the way, it showed that it outperformed by about 1.5 to 2% per year, the 90-60 versus the 100% equities. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. 
All right, back to the show. Yeah, that was so powerful when I read that. And I love Cliff's work. He puts out exceptional research and he's been doing it for so long. And it's just so interesting to think that, yeah, instead of going 100% equity, which I think a lot of investors are who are in their accumulation or growth phase, there's actually a better way and you can get a higher return for less volatility, but not in these times, but nothing works in the current times we're in. And so that's where it's run into trouble. And so you talk about a few different ways that investors can get exposure to this strategy in your article. So you talked about the PIMCO one, and then there's another ETF, NTSX. And so talk a little bit about the differences between those two, because they implement the strategy a bit differently. Okay, so the PIMCO fund is called PSLDX. It's a firecracker of a fund. I mean, it went up at a very high rate for a very long time. And then since 20, 2021, it's come down a lot. It's come down to early 2020 prices. But this has created a lot of wealth over time. It's basically 100-100. So 100% stocks and then 100% long duration bonds on top of it. This fund is useful if you want to lever up. This fund is also useful and with the idea of the return stacking here is if you want some exposure to stocks and bonds, let's say I want, I want to go 60, 40. So I could get, if I could put some money in this and I could get a lot of that exposure towards that 60, 40 without having to post all of that money. It's efficient in terms of capital. So you could do 30% or I don't know, 20, 30% in this fund and you'd get double the exposure per every dollar that you throw in. Now, the reason why you would do this again is so that you can diversify the rest of your portfolio. Commodities are a good thing to add to a portfolio, the research shows, but it's kind of dead money to put money into commodities because you can't maintain the same equity or bond exposure. But if you add a fund like this to your portfolio, even if just for a very small amount, you can maintain your exposure to stocks and bonds, but you can also get some exposure to commodities, which has been shown to hedge those two when they go down. Like we said, you know, there's been right ways and wrong ways to execute this. NTSX is the other one you mentioned. NTSX is a lower octane version of this fund. It actually close to follows the original Asmus paper. It's 9060 and the 60s in treasury futures. The PSLDX is kind of the higher octane version. NTSX is another good version that's lower. It's the 9060. NTSX, like if you really wanted to just do a two or three fund solution, you really could put a lot of money into NTSX without having to worry about risk management or anything because it's not a super risky fund. It's a good S&P 500 alternative that can free up money for some alternative stuff as well. You could go very low risk with this by adding municipal bonds, or you could use it to juice your equity exposure, or you get some commodity exposure with this. It's a good fund. It's from Wisdom Tree. Professor Jeremy Siegel, he's on the board of Wisdom Tree, and this fund was designed after Asmus's work. I think a lot of people are very down on financial theory after the last, after the last year. Financial theory missed a lot of things due to the Fed really making the fastest pivot in history from zero interest rates to now going all out to fight inflation. But going forward, this should be a good strategy. I I think these strategies are very useful. And there's one more fund, by the way. It's called TYA. This is a classic strategy that takes advantage of treasury constraints. Basically, a lot of investors are forced to buy long duration treasuries which makes intermediate treasuries have a better risk reward than long duration. In almost all countries, in almost all time periods, the intermediate is going to perform better than the long term. The exception that would be like if they picked interest rates to zero and you were earning like half a percent in intermediate term bonds or something, you don't want to add leverage on an asset that returns nothing. But 
it works very well in environments like this. If you can get intermediate term bonds in the right part of the yield curve, you can kind of take advantage of the fact these long term bonds tend to be a bit overpriced. Hey, that was super helpful because, yeah, I think that was good pointing out that it's not even just implemented stocks and bonds. It can just be a pure bond fund as well. So TYA was that one. And I guess the other thing I just wanted to ask you is in what case would someone be implementing this wrong? Because it's leveraged exposure. Who might it not be right for? You don't want to inadvertently take more risk than you're comfortable with, which I think some people did with PSLDX. It's a hundred hundred fund. So I think a lot of people saw, especially because PIMCO was paying a high dividend yield on the fund. I think people bid off a little more than they could chew because it, you know, it's capable of even in 2008, this fund went down a lot. I think people, they loved the 10, 15% distributions when it was going up, but then they saw that leverage is two sided in this case. It's not going to sink you because it's well diversified. But you don't want to take more risk than you need. And you can track the risk in your portfolio just um, by tracking the volatility. Longer term volatility scales pretty well with shorter term volatility. So you'll get a lot of warning signs like your portfolio is swinging too much and that you might not want to take as much risk as you are. It's not yet time to lever up on the stock market because I think we have a ways to go down. But, you know, if you get the 10 year treasury at four and a half percent, if you get the S&P at 3,200 or maybe even below 3,000 and you want to make that money back once you think we got a bottom and once the volatility subsides a little bit, like once we have some signs of a bottom and the downtrend is broken, you can make a lot of money really quickly in funds like this and you can cover a lot of ground. That's when to buy these, wait for higher yields and lower stock prices. That was what I was going to follow up with because it seems widely expected that the market still has farther to drop. We would expect that this fund has a lot more pain to come. But then on the bond side, that would act as so the bond side would perform better, perhaps when interest rates start to fall and then bond prices appreciate because is that the right way to think about the bond portion? If we're buying bonds, we want uh, lower prices. If we're selling them, we want higher prices. So it just depends on, on when you buy. I think with some of these strategies, I, I think they're going to be very useful. And it's good to know for like on the be a better bull and be a better bear. It's good to know that these tools exist because they can help you express opinions in more efficient ways. I um, mean, they, they can help you be more diversified. That's the true inside of this. It's not that let's use a bunch of leverage to try to beat the market or let's go all cash to try to time the market. It's good to know that these tools exist so that you can have a wider range of efficient tools that you can use for different market environments. And you can use these tactically to help you win. And I guess the last thing I'll ask you on this is that some leverage strategies, when say they're daily leveraged, you can run into trouble if you hold them very, very long term. And so is this more of a short term play or is this something that could potentially take a bit of your portfolio away from just investing in a total S&P index? Yes. The daily rebalancing funds are actually pretty interesting. I actually did some cool quant research on it. There's a mathematical relationship between the return, the interest rate, and the volatility in these leverage funds. You can actually predict the prices of these leverage funds if you're able to predict the volatility. But the long story short on the the leverage funds is that they're dangerous, but they're useful for trading. You can hold them long term, but what you're better off doing is just investing in funds like these because they're not mechanically required to rebalance into down days. 
It's called volatility drag on these. And it's actually kind of interesting because all of these leveraged ETFs have to rebalance at the end of every day. They get picked off by the prop desks at the banks and hedge funds. Basically, imagine the S&P goes down 3% on Monday. These funds have to mechanically sell, I don't know, billions of dollars in this. And guess who's going to take the other side? That's obviously the banks. This will really blow your mind on the leverage funds, short leverage funds, right? And long leverage funds. So let's say we got triple short S&P and we got triple long S&P. So at the end of the day, the short fund and the long fund, would you think the rebalancing would cancel out? It's a trick question. They actually don't cancel out. And this is the key insight. They actually compound each other. The triple leverage short fund has to make the exact same rebalancing as the triple leverage long fund. So if it's down, they sell to reset the leverage. If it's up, they buy. Now, this obviously creates problems because people are, they think they're betting on opposite things, but they're actually betting on the same thing for this last half hour of the market. And it creates a pretty decent wealth transfer of these leverage ETFs to the prop desks and the banks and the hedge funds. Now, the leverage ETFs, where they're useful is if volatility is really low, you can make big returns. Where the, I think where they're not useful is you can always beat them generally by using futures or something where the d- rebalancing is discretionary rather than where the rebalancing is forced because that, that's just something to get picked off every day. I don't recommend the use of long, of leverage ETFs long term, daily rebalance leverage ETFs, that is. Now that's distinct from funds that use the futures market to get moderate amounts of leverage. Those are fine. And there's, um, Especially in the mutual funds, there's often better risk management frameworks. The leverage ETFs are kind of toys for people. They're very popular on Reddit for, to bet on big moves, but you, you'd be better off, especially in the options market, and this is important, you're better off buying more calls on the SPY than you are buying calls on the leverage ETF because of this volatility drag thing. And there's actually some trading strategies that go around that. I know a hedge fund manager in Canada who does pretty well trading some of these anomalies. I was going to ask you, why would someone implement this instead of just buying options? And I guess perhaps just because it's easier, it's already done for you. Yeah, that's the main reason. It's easier. Options, you really got to know how they're priced. For example, like if we were to use options on a stock and if the average listener is not paying attention to the implied volatility or what's going on in the options market, Weird stuff happens all the time in the options market with the way stuff gets priced. It's stuff will get priced wrong. And then you don't want to be on the wrong side of something that's priced wrong. But what's what's cool about the options market, and I think people would like some of this, is you can do some nice tactics with options like you can with futures. Like on heavily shorted stocks, you can use the options market to you can buy calls. Yeah, you buy calls and you sell puts and you can earn the short borrow rate through the options market. Your broker won't share this with you for the most part. The best you can do is like get half of Fidelity or IB. So you can earn the whole thing if you use the options, if you buy some of these speculative stocks. Conversely, if you want to short something, you can use the options market to get a better deal. You can earn the, because when you short something, you get the cash rate, but you give the return of the stock. So if your broker isn't that nice, then they're, they're going to pocket a lot of the cash rate. Options and futures are incredibly useful to get around some of these, like, uh, get around a lot of these antiquated, like, rules and just middlemen and stuff like that. They're very useful. Maybe we'll have to dive into some of those strategies in another episode because that is something I used to use options as more of a way to, I guess, get a lower cost basis for shares. And so some op- strategies like that, but I would be very interested to learn more about those. 
But the one last thing I wanted to ask you before I let you go today is on Bitcoin, because last time we spoke, FTX was just unfolding and nothing had really happened or hadn't been solidified yet. And so you were talking about the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And I just wanted to follow up on how you're thinking about Bitcoin now after all of that unfolded and specifically even that ETF, because I remember you said it was perhaps largely determined on what happened because now maybe it might not be approved in the US. Since the last time we talked, the crypto world has been a little, uh, <laughs> there's been some drama in the crypto world. There's more people in jail than there were in, during our last podcast. So I, I guess some people are out on bail, but Grayscale. The best way to own Bitcoin, I believe, is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And this is tied to this fund that basically owns Bitcoin and Coinbase. And it trades at a discount. It got as bad as 50%, but now it's 40 There's an activist campaign underway. So there's, there's two ways you can win here. The first is Grayscale is suing the government to try to get them to allow an open-ended ETF. This might work. It's a little less likely to work since everybody seems to be under investigation or indicted already in the crypto world. But I think it's important that Bitcoin itself is blameless. Bitcoin did not hurt anyone. It did not steal anyone's money. It's actually a fantastic idea. But a lot of hangers-ons and people who just wanted to get in the crypto world to make a quick buck came in. I mean, 20,000 altcoins is crazy. All this junk happened with crypto. But what we have here in Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is actually a very old school activist opportunity. And basically, you can win if Grayscale is converted to an open-ended ETF because the 40% discount will go to zero. Mechanically, they can just redeem the shares and cash everybody out. And then there's also another activist campaign by a guy named David Bailey. He's the publisher of Bitcoin Magazine. He does not like the management of Grayscale, and he is organizing a campaign to kick them out. And in December... They had about 1% of the shares. And last I checked, they had over 25. They've got some hedge funds involved. According to his Twitter, they're completely inundated with calls and requests every day for people to pledge their shares. Because the idea is if you buy something for 60 cents on the dollar and you kick the management out and redeem it for 100, life is good. Also, Grayscale itself is trying to do a tender offer. Something's going to happen. This discount is like, there's a saying in physics that nature abhors a vacuum. So there's a big vacuum here. So something is going to happen to close this discount because there's so much money on the table. One way or another, I think Grayscale is going to be redeemed at 100 cents on the dollar. And all you have to do, if you have any interest in Bitcoin at all, is you buy this for about 60 cents on the dollar. And then if it goes to 100, you get 100. And I was way too early to this trade. I traded for a 20% discount in 2021. We thought it was a great idea. And now it's 50. But it's either... Downside's not so severe because, like I said, if there's a hundred cents on the dollar worth of Bitcoin at Coinbase and then you can buy it for 60, eventually something could always happen, which will always keep it value. Or if you win, then you, you get the whole hundred. I think the downside is, is not so severe, but the upside is very clear. And crypto being the least efficient segment of the market, I think you get opportunities like this. Historically, there's been a lot of opportunities like this in crypto, and I think this is another one of them. We'll see. Maybe next time I come on, if Grayscale is redeemed, we can take a victory lap. Uh, if it's not, then um, we can do a postmortem. But I think the risk reward is quite good. 
Yeah, it's definitely interesting. And then I have been looking more into the Canadian ETFs because we actually have a ton already in Canada. And so there's a lot of interesting ones in how they're trading for a discount to their net asset value. So it does seem like a very efficient way to get exposure to Bitcoin, although you give up some of the things that maybe people like to buy Bitcoin for in the first place. You don't hold the Bitcoin. It will never be your Bitcoin. And so I guess that's potentially a downside and maybe doesn't I don't know. It just maybe that's one of the reasons people buy it in the first place. So it might go against some people's values. But I find it's quite a good deal if you want to get exposure to it. Yeah, I mean, if we can get a safe Bitcoin like trust and Grayscale is safe, it's just problematic because of the discount and uh, because it's a closed in fund. I think that's a great way for a lot of investors. There's people who are Bitcoin maximalists who say this is not what Bitcoin's about. It's like people it's the perfect parallel is gold. Like people are like, why are you buying gold ETFs? Like when it hits the fan, like you want gold, the gold in your house or at your business rather than at a bank or in an ETF. So it's a similar debate. I'm comfortable with Grayscale. I view the risk of something bad happening with Grayscale as low. It's not FTX, but obviously people who are more on the side of the Bitcoin world where they want that control over, you know, the Bitcoin keys, then you obviously do it a different way. You don't, you don't invest in an ETF. All right. So I think we're going to end it here today. I want to thank you so much for coming back on, Logan. Could you remind our listeners where they can go to connect with you and learn more about everything that you do? In the description here, we should have a link to Seeking Alpha so you can get my work and hundreds of other authors for, I think right now we got a sale for $10 a month. I encourage anybody who has any interest at all, subscribe, you support our mission, you support our business. And then I also have a sub stack, which is my own. So anybody who wants to read some of my occasional work and musings and thoughts, subscribe to that too. So that's it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you left a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, make sure to sign up for our free newsletter, We Study Markets, which goes out daily and will help you understand what's going on in the markets in just a few minutes. So with that all said, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.